Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. As you may have perceived, uh, we didn't make that video. That was made by the church that we partnered with as uh, kind of their thanksgiving over to, to us. The team was led by uh, Pastor Jeff Brown, who also happens to be a nurse, and uh, Carrie Hartford, who is a nurse practitioner with a PhD, so she's a doctor, nurse, whatever. Um, so our whole team went out. We also had a, a group of physical therapists along as well, too, to help them deal with uh, ways to deal with pain and, and put a clinic on that. They had medical treatment to over 400 people in six different locations. They fed hundreds of homeless immigrants. In fact, there's a serious immigrant issue uh, in uh, Costa Rica. Uh, Venezuelans pressing in on their borders. And it's a political issue for them, too. In fact, uh, Miguel, the pastor of the church there that has been here before with us many times, um, said that there are some from the church that actually won't go and help feed these people who are on the street uh, entirely because they're immigrants. So there's a political thing that stopped them from handing out or being helpful in any way. Politics interferes, I guess, whatever nationality you are. Um, they had fed kids at a feeding center in a, in a barrio. They had a young 13-year-old girl they encountered who was sick with strep throat, high fever. And um, they were able to obtain antibiotics and other items for her that basically within an hour she was able to rest comfortably. And she'd been in pretty serious shape before that. Um, there was a woman who had not been able to afford blood pressure medicine and was brought to tears when our team had the exact medication and were able to give her a one-year supply on top of that. Um, they backpacked medicine into poverty-stricken barrios, and they went door-to-door treating people. Um, they had a, a string of other things. There was one particular thing that caught my attention. There was a woman, one of the immigrants, who had been hit by a car and had shattered her tibia, her um, leg. And her husband, um, this happened before they entered Costa Rica, on their way in the process. So he carried her for 10 days on foot through the Panamanian jungle to get her there, and then our team was able to minister and help her. Jeff Brown said that from now on, um, that should be included in marriage vows. Uh, to, to, well, at least to carry someone. I think that's probably a good point. Um, this team is just one of dozens, uh, maybe even 100 at this point in time or so, that have been sent out from this church over the years to throughout Central America, Russia, um, other countries that we've been to and been involved in. Um, we have this pantry that has fed for the last, uh, since COVID hit, um, this year alone, I'm told over $75,000 worth of groceries has been distributed to our community and throughout this area here. Um, we feed children regularly, not only in Costa Rica here, but there's an ongoing commitment we have to Guatemala that's sending money to feed children that are there as well. Locally, we support Trinity Health Clinic, which is a free health clinic um, for people that don't have insurance, and we support them. It's a Christian endeavor. Um, along with that compassion pregnancy, as I said earlier, that is so critical. The vote is over, and we said to begin with, it, you know, it would have been good if it had gone the other direction, but the reality is that, that the conversations we've had here was never about politics. It was never about that. 
the, the conversation is always about hearts and minds. It's always about convincing people of the truth through the gospel of Christ. And that work continues on. Compassion pregnancy is on the forefront of doing that and working with women in some of the difficult situations that they are involved in. Um, we've been involved with DBI. We actually have established that here, Detroit Bible Institute. It's an opportunity for people that really want it and are prepared to go a little deeper to really understand the scripture on a more academic level. We partner with Bethesda, Hope Baptist, other churches we've partnered together with. And so while it's on our location, it's a partnership of like-minded churches. We've had over 75 churches send their people here to provide that education um, at a very reasonable rate. Uh, and it's something that we're not making a profit on. It's a break-even type of thing. Um, there's gentle care ministries. Today you can stop by and get your blood pressure checked. I, I probably should have done it before I got, came up here. Uh, um, but they, they minister in the hospitals. They minister in death and bereavement. Um, for the longest time, so much of that was done by pastoral work. Um, but gentle care ministries is a group of, of, of lay people that gather together that minister in these areas. It's gotten to the point so much so that, that um, if I'm coming into the hospital, it's kind of a serious issue. And so if I show up, you're either a very close friend or you're in serious trouble. And so when I do show up, someone's sitting there going, which is it? You know. <laughs> but, but general care ministry is involved all the time on a regular basis with things. These are just a few of the items. Osborne community in Detroit, what was one of the most violent area of the country, and over the seven years of our involvement there, actively involved with a staff member in the school, with connections in the community there, that has changed dramatically. And there's an awareness that it's the church in large part that's been doing that. These are the things that have been done just in recent times, and we give a financial accounting every year. We have a meeting in February, and that financial accounting is available. These are things that are done. You could ask yourself, maybe in this moment of time, how are these things achieved? Well, I'm glad you asked. Okay, And that takes us to the book of Genesis and the origin story. And you've been sitting long enough. Would you please stand one more time for the reading of the word? Just when you thought it was safe. Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20, after Abram. Abram appears here. As a, he's a fascinating character, important character. Later, his name is, cha- name is changed to Abraham. But at this point in time, it's Abram. Returned from defeating Kedar and the kings allied with him. The king of Sodom came out to meet him, Abram, in the valley of Shavah, which is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by, note these words, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Father, I pray your anointing on your word upon our ears and our hearts and minds to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated? This is a fascinating section of scripture. It's the first time that we see a tithe take place and happen. And to understand it, you have to have the backstory of this. Okay, so Abram is called out by God from a far land, and he's coming to Canaan, which eventually will become Israel. And he's going to be promised things by God. And next week we'll talk about covenant and conflicts. And you'll understand where the root of the Arab-Israeli conflict comes from. It's rooted in Genesis. We'll discuss that next week. So Abram comes out. He's in the land of Canaan. He's got a nephew named Lot. And they're, they're parked alongside each other and doing their herds and their things of this nature. When the herds come in conflict over a well and some other things. 
And so the statement is made between them, look, we need to separate and give a little space between our households to make sure there's no conflict. And, and Abram, being very generous, says, Lot, you pick. Well, Lot's young guy, he, says, I'm gonna, he picks the very best place that's flat plain and everything else. It also happens to be close to some of the cities, and specifically one named Sodom. Um, Abram says, fine, I'll take this other section a little further away. They separate, everything's fine. At one point in time, five of the kings in that area, one of them being Sodom, another one from Gomorrah, and three other kings of cities, they're little city-states, decide that they're going to rebel against one other king named Chedalamora, okay, that we talked about here, and three other kings that are with them. So it's going to be five kings rebelling against four kings. And they go at it. Well, the five kings, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other ones, they lose big time. Archaeologists have shown that the four kings that are victorious devastated the area, just completely annihilated it. They take everyone captive, and along with that, they sweep up Lot, Abram's nephew, in this dragnet, okay? So they're off, and they're clear. The word comes to Abram. And Abram has a sense of filial responsibility, of of tribalism, and, and so he needs to go rescue his kinsman, Lot. So he gathers his guys together, and he's pretty wealthy at this point in time. He's not a king, but he's wealthy enough that he's got 318 trained men for combat. He has two or three allies, other local um, um, uh, herdsmen and things of this nature that are going to come alongside him and take his leadership. And so he goes after these four victorious kings that have just defeated five kings. Well, in the battle, he devastates and wins over the four kings. It's an amazing, miraculous victory. He rescues his nephew Lot, and he's coming back now from that battle with his kinsmen, with all these people, all these possessions. And as he comes back, he's coming towards this valley of the kings, or this king's valley. And in this king's valley, the king of Sodom, who's the preeminent of the five defeated kings, who's accidentally rescued as well, Uh, He shows up in the valley. And so this is the meeting. He's coming to meet with Abram. And as he comes, this king of Sodom, who's a pretty wicked dude, and I don't mean that in a positive sense, like wicked, cool, like he's wicked, all right? He comes along. And at the same time, another guy comes down from the hilltops. This guy's name is Melchizedek. Now, Mel's a very interesting guy. Melchizedek is referenced elsewhere in Scripture. In the Psalms, it is said that Jesus is going to be, or the Messiah is going to be of a priesthood of the type of Melchizedek, not of the line of Aaron, which is Moses' brother, who all the priests originally came from, but it's going to come from Melchizedek. In Hebrews, you find it being said that he has no beginning nor end, that he's very similar to Christ, that there's something about Melchizedek. Now, we don't know fully what it is, but he's a mysterious figure who shows up that seems to be a type of Christ. Either he's foreshadowing Christ, and he comes, incidentally, with bread and wine. He's coming down with communion, with, with a small Passover meal, if you will, for Abram. Um, but there's some mysterious aspect, like I say, about him. He seems to have no beginning, no end. Another interesting thing is he's both a priest and a king. Now, you didn't have those two combined because there was a power issue that was involved. Those were separated. But in the case of Melchizedek, he's priest and king. In the same way that Christ is priest and king. Now, we don't know. Was, was it a pre-Bethlehem moment of Christ? Or was it just foreshadowing Christ? 
whatever the case is, you've got Sodom, the king of, meeting with Abram, and then you have this person coming down from the little town of Salem, where he was priest and king of God. And did I mention that Salem later ends up becoming Jerusalem? In other words, he's the priest king of Jerusalem, or what will eventually be Jerusalem. And he comes on down, and they engage. And as he comes down, he calls out to Abraham, and he blesses him and saying, God, most high creator of heaven and earth, you'll be blessed. And then he says specifically, who delivered your enemies into your hand. In other words, did you think, Abram, for a moment that this was your stuff? I mean, you're going up against four kings that just devastated five kings. And come on. This is God. He delivered your enemies into your hands. And what is Abram's response? Not, no pushback, um, no challenge, no question. He hears that this guy's a priest king of, of, of high God, and he gives him a tenth of everything. Literally, the term is a tithe. He gives him one-tenth of everything that he has. Incidentally, the tenth in that time period and beyond became known as the king's portion. And so he's acknowledging the kingship of Abram and his blessing. Now, there's a whole lot more that comes on after this, but we're going to just put a pin in it for a moment. So let's leave Abram in the Valley of the Kings with, with, with his response to Melchizedek. He has yet to respond to the king of Sodom because he's there and he's got a little thought for him as well. But here's the beginning of the tithe. Here's an acknowledgement of authority of God. There's certain aspects throughout Scripture that we find in, involved with, with money, We've said in here that we don't talk about it much, and the fact is we don't. I think the last time we talked about those was probably a year ago or so. But the Scripture talks a lot. Someone took time, actually, to calculate this, and, and there's said to be 500 verses on prayer in the Scripture, 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Jesus, he talked a lot about it. Of his 38 parables, almost half of those parables tell us how to handle money and possessions. And in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, an amazing one out of every 10 verses deals directly with the subject of money. It's a thing that's of a biblical importance and significance. Now, again, I said that we haven't talked a whole lot of it about things in this place here, um, and we never give you the current disaster of the week that we're asking you to fix. The, the only time that I can recall in the history of this church, and I've been here for a significant portion of the history, I've been here since Genesis, okay? <laughs> and, and, and some of you are long enough to realize that there's a double entendre to be that, because the youth pastor here and the name of the youth group was Genesis as well, 30, 25 years back or so. And there's only one time that we've ever come to the congregation and said, hey, we got an issue we got to deal with that's like serious, we got to address it. We, we may say, hey, here's something you can give to, here's something that's happening, here's a need. But only one time it was critical. We took exactly four minutes of time, maybe three minutes, I think it was, of time on a Sunday morning in both services and just said, hey, it's coming near year end. It was December, so we realized we're going to be short on budget. Our reserves are short. It was an economic time. I can't remember if it was 2008, whatever year it was, it was pressed for the country. And we said, here's the need. Listen to the Lord and do what you can. In the next two weeks, we had double the amount that was necessary come in and more than cover what was in place. And that was the only time we've addressed anything like that in this place. During COVID, when nobody knew what was happening, nobody knew what was happening and the church was empty and we're live streaming and all the rest was part of that. 
We had individuals that gave significant sums during that time just to make sure things were going along and maintaining freely without any requests given or, or asked for. That's been the generosity of this church and of this place. When we look into the idea of, of what is this whole thing about, there's a few things we find. One is we find a promise in Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. It says, honor the Lord. So the first thing about tithing, offering, it's just about honor. Anybody can sing a song. It takes different to actually structure your giving. By giving him the first part of all your income, the first choice on that. And then he says, fill your barns with wheat and barley and overflow your wine vats with the finest wines. I know not a whole lot of us have a lot of vats lying around full of wine or barley. But it's dressing about blessings. It's about ways that those can be provided for. Now, some people will take this passage, another I'll read in a moment. They use it as part of something called the prosperity gospel. And they use it to manipulate people. You know, you give $100, you'll get back $1,000. Give this and you'll do that and God will bless you. And, and the more you give, the more you get. And it becomes about greed. It's not about honoring God. It's not about blessing God. It becomes about fear and greed and manipulation. There is blessing, but those blessings may not always come the way we think. And I'll go to that in a moment of time. So there is a blessing. There's a promise. But there's a purpose behind it. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, 23, it says, Bring this tithe, this king's portion, this 10%, to eat before the Lord your God at the place he shall choose as his sanctuary. There's a place where to bring it to. This applies to your tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, and the firstborn of all your flocks and herds, and all stocks and bonds and etc. Okay? And here it says, The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. To put God first in your lives. That's the purpose of it, is to teach us that. God doesn't need your money or my money, but he wants what it represents, which is our heart. In 1815, uh, Napoleon was defeated in the Battle of Waterloo. I've walked that battlefield before. And the hero of the battle was a guy named Duke of Wellington. And if you watched the Queen's burial or funeral, you would have seen that most of it was done at one point in time near, near the, the Wellington Arch. It was a victory arch given in, in, in honor of his victory. He was an incredibly brilliant commander and significant in history. The Duke's most recent biographer claims right now that he has an edge over all other previous biographers as he's writing this new book. He said his advantage is this that he has found an old account ledger that showed how the Duke had spent his money. That, said this biographer, is a far better clue to what the Duke thought was really important, more so than reading his letter or his speeches or anything else he did. It showed where his heart was at and where the commitment was. And so our checkbook, where we put our monies, where we put our finances, tell us, tell ourselves, as well as anyone we care to look, where our priorities are. And let's be honest. If we were to unveil that today, I think we'd find that a significant portion of us have a greater loyalty, commitment, and priority to Comcast and internet service than we do to the things of God. On a monthly basis, we prioritize that more than we do the things of God. I have a calendar I use these old analog bags. I, I, I write them down. And I've got almost about 38 of these that are stacked up still, bag of my house. And if you were to go through these, you could see who I met with, where my time was spent, what was a priority, my vacations, all of it's here. 
If you could read my handwriting, which there's not a chance this side of heaven you're going to be able to do that. But, but if you could decode it, this is my life in, in 38, almost 40 little folders. The same can be said in regards to our finances. There is a blessing, but let's modify. There is a purpose, a promise behind this. There's a purpose behind this. There's also a place for this. In Malachi 3.10, it says, bring to the storehouse a full tenth or a tithe of what you earn so there'll be food in my house. Again, it's a metaphor talking there. But test me in this, says the Lord All-Powerful. I'll open the windows of heaven for you and pour out all the blessings you need. Now you have to listen closely to that one. I got all these blessings. That's what it's all about. All the blessings that you need. Not necessarily the blessings that I think I need or that I want, but the ones that God says that I need. And it may be that I give generously and freely and God still keeps me in a humble state because he knows that that's my need because if I was in a greater state, I would mishandle that. There's blessings, but it's not always in the way that we think. But the key thing here is it says bring it into the storehouse, that it's a place of worship that we're to bring these things into. We can say, well, well, I, I can take my tithe, though, and I want to honor God, and I'm going to do that by giving to the Red Cross because they're a great organization. I'm going to do that by taking care of a relative of mine that's, that's out of work right now. I see this person on the street that needs money and food, so I'm going to, that's what I'm going to, that's my tithe. That's contrary to two of the scriptures we've just read that says, no, you bring it into the sanctuary. You bring it into the storehouse. That other thing that we do, that's not tithing. That's called charity. And we're supposed to do that too. But it's a separate issue. When I'm controlling it, it's charity. When I release it before God, it's honor, it's worship, it's humility, it's submission. Nobody knows that I gave that. Nobody knows that I ministered in Costa Rica or that I helped pay someone's electrical bill, which has happened many times, or that I've, I've helped to bring a, a shorter, to, to bridge a gap, not dependency, but to bridge a gap in someone's life, or food, or things. No one knows that. I don't get any applause for that. Those of us that have given faithfully, we get no applause for that. But when I give it myself, the focus is on me. And I want to be clear, I've tithed since I was a child. I still tithe. And I release that fully and completely and that's determined on whatever things and a lot of it's stuff that I don't have any involvement myself in. There's charity and there's tithing. Never get the two confused. But we bring those things in. We lay those before the feet of God. Well, how and when? It's specific in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 too on every Lord's Day. Each of you should put aside. In other words, it's something we should plan. It's not, oh, you know what? I've spent every bill and now I've been fake Comcast. Now I've got, I've got a dollar left. You know, God, that's yours. No, it's to be planned. It's to be put aside. It's part of worship and an expression of that. You can read the entire passage up there. But that's what this is about. There's no control. There's nothing else. It's a release before God. I think of it sometimes tithing this way. And this is my militaristic background, okay? One person out there can fire a shot. But if you've ever seen those old war movies where they're all ranked out together and they're all together and they do what's called volley fire, you ever guys see that at all? It, it basically, they got like 100 guys and they all fire like at one time. And it massively wins over the battle and does something with that. That's what happens when we gather together and do these things as one. Some people will say, well, I can't tithe because I'm in debt. 
And should I get rid of my debt first? And this is the controversial thing now that I'm going to say. This next thing is very controversial. The Lions are going to win the Super Bowl. Okay, that's not controversial. That's just stupid, all right? No. There are a lot of pastors who would say, no, you must tithe first. I think that if you are in massive debt, we're not talking your mortgage. We're not, nobody's ever fully maybe out of debt, but we're talking massive like credit card debt, things that are crushing you, where you have no dollars to spare for anything. I think it's appropriate in those situations. You need to, to get out. I, I think you, you say to the person you're renting from, no, I can't pay you because I have, I have been giving my tithe to God, so I cannot honor my debt. I don't think that's right. I think you honor your debt, and that way you honor God. Now, I would say in that same moment, though, that I would take a dollar, five dollars, something to set aside as at least keeping a place marker and something that you review, and you build upon that over time. And don't play games with that. God and you, it's between you and him. He knows when you're playing a game. Well, God, I still have a lot of debt here. So, you know, I got a student debt and I got my mortgage. I'll, I'll always have my mortgage, so I guess I really can't tithe, God. You know what that is. But don't dishonor God by trying to do a tithe while at the same time dishonoring commitments that you've made. But put that place marker there. Put that element in place so that you don't lose track of what's going on. One of the key things about this, Jesus talks about. He talks about in Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He goes on to say, because where your treasure is, there your heart is going to be also. Where your treasure's at. My wife worked for, uh, Renee worked for EDS for a number of years. And they had a program there where you could buy stock instead of when you, when you instead of getting a paycheck or part of your, you do like 10% of your paycheck and get it as stock. We did that for a season of time. Yeah, when we did the EDS stock was running like 12 bucks. And um, so for maybe, I don't know, five, 10 years, we did that. We used that actually to purchase the house that we had because we sold it then later at 72. Great deal, okay? But for those 10 years, I paid a lot of attention to EDS stock. I mean, I would check it at least weekly. If not, is it up? Is it down? Where's it going? We've got to watch how we're going. When are we going to bail on this? Because I was invested in it. Now, we dispensed all that 25 years ago. You know what? I don't care about EDS at all. I got no investment. Good thing. EDS ceased to exist a couple of years ago. See, EDS was temporal. Kingdom of God isn't. But where our heart is and where our treasure is, that's where our heart goes. And God knew that. Jesus goes on, and in the message version, it puts it this way. He says, don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and rust and worse, burglars, etc. Stockpile treasure in heaven. A little twist on that where your heart is. It says, the place where your treasure is, is, is the place you most want to be and end up being. I'm really glad that EDS was not where I wanted to end up being. Your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body's a musty cellar. If you pull the blinds in your windows, what a dark life you will have. Then he says, you can't worship two gods, and I would say two kings at once. Loving one god, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. Where's your focus? Where's the attention given? Where is, is the thing that is, is drawing us? We can't serve two 
God's. Because where our treasure is, that's where our heart's going to be. Abram's been sitting for a while. We need to get back to him. So this one king of Sodom comes in the valley of the kings and Melchizedek, this figure that is Christ-like, that has some element that gives bread and wine and receives this first tithe. Abram makes a very decisive decision there. He's going to pursue this and, and identify here. But we forgot about the king of Sodom. And the chapter goes on, chapter 14, verse 21, the king of Sodom, standing watching this whole transaction, says to Abram, give me the people. Keep the goods for yourself. You know, take all the stuff as a reward. Just give me the people because I can get more stuff. And also, I can't be king without people. Okay? That was his thinking. All right? Give me the people. Keep the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord. And notice the language. It's the same one Melchizedek uses. God most high, creator of heaven and earth that I'll accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. This is incredible moment, guys, that you have to capture. You have two kings coming together in the valley of the kings. The one asks nothing but offers blessing and identification with God. And Abram chooses that, snap, not even a moment of hesitation on that. The other king, the king of Sodom, And we'll talk about that at another time. King rooted in wickedness and evil, whose city's name has had meaning over the decades of time and centuries and millennia. He comes and says, hey, let's have a deal. And Abram, there's, there's an intensity to his response. He doesn't just say, no, thank you, I appreciate that. It was just enough that I was able to help out. He says, no, I won't accept anything. I swore it before God. Not even a strap, not a thread. Why? Two kings stood there. He rejected the authority, the relationship, any sense of identity with the one and fully embraced without hesitation identity, the authority, and submitting to the other. This is the choice that we make almost all the time with our finances, with how we handle the things that we've been given. The title of this message it can be confusing to you because the one a couple of weeks ago was for the kingdom with a question mark. It was about, are we for the kingdom of God or are other, other things pulling us away, other political persuasions, things of this nature? But today, I'm offering it to you as for the kingdom with an exclamation point, with a punctuation mark. Why? The punctuation mark is, is a fascinating thing and, and, and basically the, the, the punctuation mark means this. It's, it's used at the end of a sentence or a short phrase which expresses very strong feeling. It expresses strong emotion. It's an exclamation point. It shouts at us in, in the, the literature that we read it. It, it. It's a statement of joy, of exhilaration, or of power. When I was in my graduate studies in Chicago, I came across this phrase I'd never heard before, and we were discussing salvation, and the discussion was going on with the professor saying, is is salvation progressive? Like, we we gradually? Or is it punctiliar? I'd never heard that phrase. Is it progressive? Well, some of the class said, yeah, I, I just kind of grew up and eventually realized I'm a Christian. Others said, 
it was punctiliar. In other words, it was January 14th, 1985 at 2 a.m. Punctuation mark, bang. That's when I became a Christian, a follower of Christ. I was always caught with that phrase, punctiliar, pertaining to a point of time, occurring at a definite and particular point in time, active identification and support for a cause or a purpose and we mark it this way. My prayer is that this morning this will become a punctiliar moment of time for you. That this will become a time when you recognize that it's not about charity, it's about tithing. That it's not about control, that it's about release. That it's about recognizing and honoring and identifying with and following and in gratitude responding to a king of Jerusalem and not the one of Sodom who runs this world. People come to this church for needs. Why? Because they see the church as a place where those needs can be met and where there are people who recognize the principle that we've discussed here today they make those resources available so those needs can be met, whether it's here, Guatemala, Costa Rica, Osborne, our surrounding neighborhood, the people within our own community. We're accountable, but don't ever come up to me ever, 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 or one of our leadership team and say, I've paid my tithes. You don't, we don't pay our tithes. We offer them up. We've had people that have offered tens of thousands of dollars if we'll just put a plaque on a wall somewhere and we say, no, we're not going to do that. It's not about you buying your way into the kingdom or, or, or getting this certain special favor or manipulating the agenda. It's about release. It's about gratitude. It's about worship. It's about honoring the king. This morning I offer you finally one scripture because you see, here's, the, here's how the story continues on. Is Joshua is this guy who comes down the line. Abram has children upon children upon children. Eventually the whole city, the country of Israel is established by his progeny. They end up in Egypt. They get out of Egypt. Long story. We'll talk about it later. One of the leaders that leads them into the promised land is a guy named Joshua. Joshua has a powerful um, way of ministering and leading. And when he comes to the end of his time, and he's stepping away from the leadership, he speaks to the children of Israel, these millions of people that have flowed from the loins of Abram. But they've learned the same principle of the same God who cares. And he makes this statement in Joshua 24. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. You have the choice. You always have. Questions, what choice will we make? Choose for yourself these days who you'll serve, but whether the gods your ancestors serve beyond your face or the gods the Amorites in whose land you're now living. But as for me and my household, we will what? I didn't hear that, right? But as for me and my household, we will what? That's his response. He says, I don't care what the rest of you are doing. I'm following Father Abraham. I will serve the Lord. I will serve the Lord in every capacity I can. And that includes in giving. And it says, and then the people answered, far be it from us. This is where I ask for this punctiliar moment from you. 
This is where I ask that you would consider this day, your response, and that it would be far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And it has an exclamation point in mind. It has a punctuation mark. It has this punctiliar moment where the people have arrived and said, far be it. We would not know. We will serve the Lord. Our allegiance, our loyalty, our gratitude, our heart's desire, our future, our recognition of him as the one and only king, all of this is wrapped up together and we will serve the Lord this day. Punctuation mark. Bang! Full on. This morning, of all the messages delivered this year, this was by far the most dangerous to you. To some of us. And you're left to consider what decision you'll make. Next week, it'll be safe again. And you can just imagine, it was all a dream. It was just a dream. What do you do with what you've been given? Charity is one thing. The tithe is what stands between two kings and a valley of kings. It's recognizing who gives us the victory. It's recognizing who gives us the breath in our lungs, who gives us salvation and grace and forgiveness of sin. It's uniting with a brother and sisterhood that ministers to those who look and come in need and whose needs are met. And so, Father, I pray as we bow our heads before you now, and across this congregation and those in the atrium and those who are online right now, that there would, as they consider this deeply, your words, your words, spoken by your son and by your prophets, Lord, they would have a punctiliar moment of awareness and arrival to choose in a very tangible way to move past just charity to serving you with their tithes, with their offerings that we may together see great things for you, that we may receive blessings, but above all, Lord God, that we would just be in your presence in worship and honor, identification and fellowship. This day, this day, Lord, let us make our choices. There's something when a people come together for a common cause or purpose that incredible thing can be achieved that can't be achieved one by one. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have stood on that day with all of Israel assembled and for Joshua to make the statement as he made. It's one that's rung down through the millennia. So I'm going to ask you today if you would read out loud the last line of that where it says, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Let's just make it simple. Far be it from us to forsake the Lord. So, wait for it. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord. Some of you today, I think, I hope, I pray, have had a punctilious moment to say something has to change. 
and I'm going to make those changes. Others of you have been faithful for generations. And let this day be an encouragement to you. Realize that the year is almost over. We're in the midst of the holidays. It'll be a new year, a new time to set a course. Easter's right around the corner. (laughs) Father, I pray that there would be no one that would walk out of this place in any way feeling battered or bruised. But I pray alert. I pray, Father, for those who have been constant, that they would be encouraged this day and uplifted. For those who make a decision today out of conviction, not condemnation, let them be lifted up and encouraged as they review how they can engage effectively. Lord, we stand today because of your grace and your word. And this day we honor the King, the one and only King to whom all kings bow down to. At the name of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray, Father, that you'd guide us as we seek to follow you. And the church said, amen, amen.